0: to Samovar, a weekly conversation with Aaron Lansky at the Yiddish Book Center. I'm Emma Morgenstern. I'm sitting with Aaron, the center's founder and president, and today he's going to update us a little bit about what's going on here at the center, and then we'll talk about a recent flurry of articles in newspapers and on the blogosphere about the revival of Yiddish. Good morning, Aaron.
1: Morning, Emma. We're back from vacation here. We just Oh, God, I was away with my wife and I and our two dogs headed off to rural Nova Scotia where we have a house and went there for the first time ever in the winter and froze for four days and enjoyed every second of it, and there's my dog scratching as we speak, but now we are back.
0: So what's going on here at the center at the beginning of this new year? Well, we are
1: really starting out with a bang this year. we, we started uh, the f- on right after New Year's, on Tuesday of this week. We had a whole bunch of students arrive for the start of our annual January term program for college students. So these are mostly students from the, the five colleges, primarily from Smith, uh, Mount Holyoke, and Hampshire colleges. And they come here for the month to uh, immerse themselves in Yiddish and Yiddish culture. So our perennial favorite Yiddish teacher, Yuri Yapin, is back from travels in Europe. And he's teaching an intensive Yiddish class each day. And and starting next week, uh, Justin Cami from Smith and his wife Rachel Rubenstein from Hampshire will be teaching modern Jewish literature and culture as well. Uh, and the students are loving every second. They've only been here two days so far. And yesterday I went walking through the building and every place I looked was full of students because they were all working on projects in the afternoon. So I walked downstairs, for example, in the student center and there are four or five students uh, sitting around a table together with uh, Jordan Kutzik and, and they're, they're one of our fellows and they've got these boxes of uh, reel-to-reel tapes from the Jewish Public Library in Montreal and they're sorting it all out and getting it ready for remastering and other students are working on book projects and then there must have been five or six of them in the video studio working on oral history projects with Krista Whitney. So, the place is already hopping and it's just going to get even better as the month goes on.
0: That's great. It sounds like a lot of fun.
1: It's really fun. It's, it's what makes our work, you know, worthwhile. So,
0: um, so we, that's actually a great segue because we've uh, increased a lot of our educational programming in recent months and years even. Um, so now we have 18 students in our summer program for college students and we have a year-long fellowship program as we've mentioned. We are starting a high school program this coming summer. So why now? Why is this all happening right now?
1: Uh, you know, I, I think about that question a lot. And uh, you know, I guess if I think about what happened 30 years ago and how much the world's changed, it, it, you know, obviously there's a wonderful sense of vindication in all of this, but there's also a sense for me of kind of inevitability in it as well. You know, when you think about it, the fact that you know, Jews, the most bookish people possibly in human history, you know, literally threw away a million books, or threw away a literature. That's an extraordinary phenomenon, and is emblematic of a much deeper problem. I, I think I was 24, it was already obvious to me that, wow, they didn't just chuck books. I mean, we threw away or we discarded or we lost track of an entire culture, a whole side of, of, of Jewish identity. And for so many years, you know, kind of the ethos of the American Jewish community was to fit in. You know, we, it was okay to make a religion out of Judaism, but all the rest of it, if it didn't quite have to go, it certainly needed to be toned down and, uh, you know, done in private. And, you know, Jews might go up to the Catskills and tell Jewish jokes and laugh about it. but. Uh, you know, in the mainstream, Jews became more and more decorous and more and more well behaved and more and more kind of, you know, aspired to be part of the mainstream. And we lost a gigantic chunk of our culture in the process. So, so what's changed? It's really the world that changed. You know, uh, I think it's just a very different America in which we live right now. So, you got young people now, you know, God, they go to school. They're with kids from all over the world. They are intensely aware of a much broader, you know, and much bigger universe than I ever knew existed growing up. And if they're going to be exploring all sorts of different cultures, you know, it's not just, you know, dead white men, as we say, you know, and studying literature anymore. They're reading literatures of all sorts of peoples and from all over the world. Uh, At some point, there's an inevitability to Jewish kids wanting to understand themselves as well. You know, it's one thing to understand everybody else, but at some point, you know, Henry Sapoznik. you know his...
0: The name sounds familiar, yeah. Yeah.
1: Henry was... um, Oh, he worked at YIVO, the Sound Archives, for many years, and then he founded was an accomplished klezmer musician, and ethnomusicologist, and then he founded um, uh, Klezkamp, where people from you know come in this really intense immersion in Jewish culture up in the Catskills. I remember—I remember, I remember uh, he spoke here once. Henry spoke here once, and he said that he had started out as a bluegrass musician. He said he used to go down to Appalachia and he was always learning all these new bluegrass songs and he was so into the whole thing and finally one day he's sitting there learning yet another song and one of these local people up in the, you know, the mountains of uh, West Virginia looked at him and said, do Jews have any music of your own? You know, they were out <laughs> trying to learn everybody else's music. And, and I have a friend who's the world's, a Jewish guy, who's the world's expert in Tibetan literature. You know, I mean, Jews study the whole world. It's sort of an inevitability that the time would come we want to understand ourselves as well. So I think the time's just ripe for it. And once Jewish kids come around and start wanting to understand themselves, then they have to come to Yiddish at some point. Not, not out of ideology, not because Yiddish is the only definition of Jewish life, but simply because if you want to understand who Jews are as a people, we need to understand where we come from, and if you want to understand where we come from, at some point we have to come to terms with the language Jews actually spoke, or three-quarters of the world's actually, Jews actually spoke for the last thousand years, and therefore I think young people are turning to Yiddish like we've never seen before. And I should add, that also accounts for the intense interest not only in Yiddish culture but in Yiddish language specifically, because kids are just much more polyglot now. They understand that language is a key to cultural understanding. You know on all fronts, and therefore on the Jewish front, it means you don't only study Hebrew, which is critical, but you also study the language Jews actually spoke, which was, you know, for, for most Jews in Central and Eastern Europe had been had been Yiddish.
0: And so what's our role in all of this at the Yiddish Book Center? We,
1: we are really in kind of an incredibly enviable role right now because, uh, you know, I think the world's just slowly kind of waking up to this reality like you saw these articles last week Where, where were they there was one in AP was it or
0: yeah? There was one in AP. There's there have been articles in the forward and
1: the AP one had a funny headline, right? What was it? it, or was was it like
0: Gevalt Yiddish is making a comeback. It oh, apologies. yeah, right. right. Well first yeah.
1: of all, that's a misuse of the word Gevalt because it's not exactly a crisis that is making right. a comeback. It's really <laughs> surprising I mean, it's, it's quite wonderful that it's making a comeback in that sense, but I, I think yeah I read I read those articles and and I think in all of them there's a slight tone of astonishment you know wow you know what's what's going on here and although it's never quite explicitly stated there's almost an undercurrent that you know you know, is this nostalgia or is it something funny, is it something kind of retro that's going on that people are finding Yiddish, you know? Whereas for me, it's more like that Bob Dylan song, you know, you know that something's happening here, but you don't know what it is, do you, Mr. Jones? There is something happening that's far more profound than nostalgia or far more, you know, isn't this cute or isn't this sweet that young people are coming to terms with Yiddish? I think it represents a profound paradigm shift and cultural shift in the world generally and in the Jewish world in particular. So to go back to your question for the Book Center, you know we're here we've been doing this for 32 years now we're we're pretty good at it you know we we work with the major scholars all over the world we've learned how to teach we've learned how to develop programs for young people and we're learning more all the time and so we're in a great position now to uh, kind of share this knowledge with the world sometimes I think wow it's, it's like we've got this gigantic treasure chest here you know for 30 years we've been rescuing books all over the world we found these tapes we found you know cultural artifacts we sit on this treasure trove such as the world's never seen and you know, how do you open it up? and How do you begin to share the treasures? Now that people really, really want to know what's inside, what a great role to be in, right? To be able to share that. So our role is kind of twofold, in a way, or maybe threefold even. You know, on the one hand, we provide the raw material for all of this, and of course, the online library accomplishes that as well. Translation accomplishes all of that. We help teach people to help them to, uh, you know, to understand uh, the content of the culture, and we also play this role as kind of um, Oh, you know, in, in, you know, as avatars or, or, or as people who are kind of in the intellectual forefront of, of sharing the broader idea of this with the broader world, you know, that to say that, hey, we're at an amazing turning point in Jewish history, and I think we can articulate what that means and what's happening here so it doesn't become something where one's just perplexed or kind of astonished at you know why in the world would young people be interested in Yiddish as we so often hear I think we can present it in a way that it becomes the most common the most um, common sense thing in the world and you know I, I, I swear I believe this that that you know 50 years from now maybe even 10 years from now we're going to look back we meaning all, all Jews everywhere we'll look back and the aberrant period the thing that seems weird to us is not going to be the fact that in what year is it now 2012 that young people came around and started you know, but connecting with yiddish culture the weird thing is going to be that isn't it amazing that for a period of about a hundred years we lost track of our own culture and our own language and our own identity and isn't it wonderful that finally we kind of came to our senses and the world changed enough that it could allow us to begin reclaiming what was rightfully ours and building something new and i just have to say one more thing emma we're not living in the past right you know we're not, we're not Exploring these great treasures and opening up the treasure chest and figuring out what this literature and culture are all about so that we can You know have this wonderful retro uh, engagement with the past We're doing it because it's the foundation for whatever comes next you know in other words You can't make new creativity ex nihilo you got you got it's got to have antecedents. It has to have literary precedent my god we sit on a you know this mountain of no, this ocean is probably the better you know this ocean of learning and of knowledge here and uh, to begin sharing that Uh, is is wonderful and then to sit back and see what happens next and what kind of creativity it gives rise to in English and other languages that's going to be even more exciting.
0: There has been some pushback with a lot of these articles um, in terms of saying that Yiddish isn't experiencing a revival that it's actually at this point it's continuity because the revival happened 30 years ago and so this is just a continuation um, this interest in Yiddish is a continuation of something that happened in the past. Um, so, do you think that's what we're experiencing? Is it revival? Is it continuity? Is it both? Oh, these things
1: are always incremental. You know, I mean, yes, of course, we won't be here you know, today. We, the Yiddish Book Center, wouldn't be here today if it weren't for the fact that 32 years ago I was a grad student in Yiddish literature and, you know, realized enough, you know, as a young person, having grown up in America, somehow understood enough that there was a literature in danger of destruction and we needed to do something about it. And certainly at that point, you know, when I went out to study Yiddish, I I mean, I started studying at University of Massachusetts when I was a student at Hampshire College, but I eventually went to the EVO program, which was then at Columbia, and uh, you know, that program existed. It existed since 1968. There were people around who were able to teach me and I was able to learn in a serious kind of way. So it wasn't like it kind of started from scratch or you know, there was nothing and then came the Yiddish Book Center. I mean, there are plenty of wonderful, strong you know, organizations out there that have been engaged in this work for a very long time. But I think all of us have sort of felt like voices in the wilderness. You know, it's been a pretty small world. I mean, there were groups like Juventry, you know, a small group of young people involved with the Yiddish language. I mean, there there were always these pockets here and there of people, you know, working on this. But the idea of it kind of coming back into sort of mainstream, venues, both intellectually and culturally, I think is, is something that's been a, an incremental process that's really picking up steam now. So yeah, of course, it started, it never, it's not even that it started 30 years ago. Revival is not even the right word. I mean, it's always been there sort of on a very slow simmer on a very back burner, but now it's really come to the fore. So I mean, in Jewish scholarship, for example, you know, the whole emphasis now is on social history, Cultural history: How did Jews actually live their lives? You can't do that without access to Yiddish sources. Without knowing the language that the Jews you're studying were actually speaking, it's preposterous to think you can study them without without knowing that. So, most serious, you know, Jewish students of Jewish history today and modern Jewish literature now learn Yiddish because you you need it. It's just as you have to have. Um, you know, Hebrew when you have to have English and other languages, so I mean it's just part of the scene and I think people have come to, to understand that more and more. And certainly in terms of, you know, broader cultural movements, I mean it's just a richness of content that people realize, you know, the idea that you could create a Jewish cultural revival, or, or, a, or, or you know, that you can re-energize modern Jewish creativity without reference to what came before, you know, to the to Jews' first sustained encounter with the modern world, is just silly. That's illusory, right? You, you have to. I mean, if you have great treasures, why wouldn't you have access to them? So I think what's changed is not that there's a revival all of a sudden. I think it's the fact that. Uh, It's not a question of nostalgia. It's not a question of a kind kind of, you know, small group activity of a few, you know, lone voice in the wilderness. It's something that's becoming quite mainstream. I mean, after all, this is not an odd thing. You know, Yiddish was the spoken language of three quarters of the world's Jews for roughly a thousand years. And on top of that, it gave rise to the single most concentrated outpouring of literary creativity in all of Jewish history at a moment when Jews were first encountering the modern world and figuring out what it meant to live outside of the dictates of Talmudic law and what it meant to kind of you know reconstruct Jewishness in the modern context. It was our, you know, our Renaissance and our Reformation and our Enlightenment all wrapped into one, you know, all playing out in the period of 60 or 70 years with extraordinary literary output. So, how in the world any of us as Jews can kind of understand modern Jewish life without Reference to that it's, it's as silly as trying to understand modern Jewish life without reference to Torah and Talmud and, and other sources, you know I mean, it is both the blessing and the curse of us Jews that we have a real lot of books that came before us And we have a real lot to learn, but it's boy. What a what a wonderful gift as well
0: All right. Well, I think that's all for today. <laughs>
1: Great. Well, thanks Emma. Uh,
0: yeah, thank you um, you can read Aaron's articles, uh, Flip Side and Roadmap, which are about this other side of Jewish culture, in the two most recent issues of Pachentrager. Both can be found on our website, YiddishBookCenter.org. I'm Emma Morgenstern. Thanks for listening to Samovar, a weekly conversation with Aaron Lansky. Our original theme music was written and performed by Hank Netsky. This has been a production of the Yiddish Book Center in Amherst, Massachusetts.